Great to see you all, old and new. No one here's old, are they? No. Nah. Um, yeah, prophetic edge, actually. I was just, uh, as we were worshipping, I was thinking, shall I bring this now or shall I wait until I'm up there anyway? Um, but yeah, God was giving me something. Um, and it's one of those things that you think, is this going to be a bombshell or not? <laughs> just uh, started off with um, threads threads going out across the congregation and uh, it finished up being a garment um, and I'm associating that with the notion of a mantle, uh, the garment in which the community of faith is wrapped, you know, what you're walking in, what you're living in, uh, what you're enjoying um, finding God in, where you're seeing him move, um, where you're actually getting hold of his presence, you're wrapped up in this thing. But as I'm looking, I'm seeing threads. The garment is getting worn out in places. Um, it's getting threadbare. And uh, I'm saying, so God, what have I got to do? And what he's saying to me is, whatever you do, do not patch it. Um, we're tempted to go to the place where the holes are, where the worn outness is, where the tiredness is, and find something fresh and new and stitch it on. She's all right for a bit, makes it look better, makes it functional perhaps, but actually after a time, as you know from experience, and actually the scripture I think too, the patch will come off, okay? Um, so what do we need to do? We need to remember how this garment is made up. The garment starts off with, I don't know what the technical name for these things are, but threads that go this way. That's the weft, yeah? And then it's finished off with threads that go this way. Okay, now if we're calling it weft, whatever you like, the weft is the stuff that cannot be changed. The stuff that God has given you from the very beginning, when this whole thing started to be. And it's the stuff without which you will not exist, okay? So the weft is the stuff that is unmovable. You need to know what that is. But then when you start to put the, what is it? When you start to put the warp back, you get rid of the rubbish, the worn out stuff, and you put that across everything. You don't miss out bits. So what I'm saying is that everything you do has got to be connected to everything you know, okay? It's got to be tied on tight. Whether that's the emphasis of the thing, you know, suppose it's a, um, a tapestry or something and you've got a picture in the middle and the picture you think is the important bit. So when you get down to that part, that bit's got to be right and good. But actually, no, that's going to fall out unless it's connected up here to the bits that don't look so important to it. Okay, so I'm just saying that I feel that's what God is saying to you as a church. But then I say, well, so what? How do they start with this, Lord? Does this apply to everybody? And then I'm thinking, oh, he's actually telling me this. When I look at me, is my mantle a bit threadbare? Have I got a few holes and patches, a few sore spots, a few bits where I'm not getting something or something's not right, something's dropping out? And so God says, the whole is the sum of its parts that we all need to be doing this. When we come to a place where we think, actually, I'm not so good at this anymore, 
I need to go back to everything that he's given me, yeah? that is the truth, that is what God has made me out of. And I need to connect what I'm thinking about, that area, to those things. Don't forget any of them. No skipping bits. Does that mean anything? Yeah, I hope so, because uh, I just felt that was what God was bringing as we worship. There's a scripture that talks about the person that's, that's wise, that knows the things of God, will go to a, a storehouse and out things that are both old and new. Yeah? And uh, so when I come here, I think, am I going to bring something old or new? <laughs> it's going to be old, I'm afraid, but I think there was a new bit just then, and there may be new. I think, actually, when Jenny goes to her uh, jewellery box to get out a necklace or something, she gets one out. There's always something else attached to it, if you notice that lady. Yeah. She can bring it out to me. Can you untangle those, Alan? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, we're looking at um, Exodus 1. And if you're going to throw it up on the screen, I'm using the New King James. Exodus chapter 1, starting at uh, verse 7. Basically, this is after the death of Joseph and a new regime starting in Egypt. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of, children, of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. So go up out of the land. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigour, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigour. And then... The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. Actually, I noticed that, did you? There were, there were myriads of Israelites and only two midwives. What changes? <laughs> and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstools, if it's a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but saved the male children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And saved the male children. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, uh, they're lively and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> Believe that, if you will, yeah. Therefore God, therefore God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast him into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a healthy child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river bank. As his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. 
and her maidens walked along the river. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby wept. She had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. The Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew, drew him out of the water. Now, several of you could come up and preach this now. It's a new little bit, actually. I didn't notice this before when I've actually um, looked at this scripture. But it jumped out at me this time. It's right at the beginning when it says, There was a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I thought, why is that in there? Why is that significant? It makes you go back over it and you think, well, so who was Joseph? Joseph was the guy from the household of faith, from the kingdom of God, who had been promoted within Egypt. Now, we have to think of Egypt as the world, if you like, um, the, the wayward world, the world that is uh, seeking its own direction, creating its own kingdom, um, oblivious to God, um, not knowing God, not caring about God, creating their own gods, creating their images which they would worship, and so on. So we can think of, if you like, Egypt as being um, the anti-God community. It seemed that in Joseph's time, the king, the pharaoh, got to understand that there is something in the power of God which can benefit us all. And so Joseph rose through the ranks in Israel, in Egypt, and became the chief advisor to the pharaoh. Pharaoh would not do a thing without consulting Joseph. Joseph interpreted his dreams, Joseph gave him advice, interpreted wisdom that came from others, told him which ones to listen to, which ones not to, um, dealt with the economy, dealt with the uh, social well-being of the community. Joseph was well thought of. And through him, the people of God also became acceptable and tolerated, if you like, sometimes even esteemed by the Egyptian people. That all ended, it seems, when Joseph died. And now we've got somewhere where the king doesn't know Joseph. And what happens? All hell breaks loose. Yeah? When there is no one who is carrying the presence of God and who is communicating in heart with the living God, the community goes to hell. I thought that's a word for us now. We can be Joseph's in our community and Pharaoh needs to have him. Pharaoh needs to know Joseph. Yeah? Because when he doesn't, what happens is we get not only chaos, but this is where the old word starts. The first people attacked are the next generation. Okay? So the children are the vulnerable ones. They are the ones that can't defend themselves. They are the ones that become the victims of the madness 
of this pharaoh, this despotic king, uh, this evil king. This pharaoh became and is still considered to be, if you like, the personification of the devil in biblical terms. Okay, If you want a, a human image of the devil, look at Pharaoh. That's what the scripture tells us. And so Pharaoh has determined, first of all, that he will destroy the children. And he chooses that it will be the boys, and he chooses uh, that they will be killed by the midwives to start with. That's plan A. It's great fun, this, isn't it? Plan A doesn't work. These midwives um, decide, no, I'm not going to do that. So there's, there's one of our first ploys, isn't it? When we, as holders of a position in the household of faith, know that there is something wrong in a situation, the first thing that we can do is refuse to cooperate with it. Uh, you can call it civil disobedience, if you like. Um, there will be ways in which we can actually honourably hold a position or deceitfully hold a position like these guys. We're not going to do this unless let God sort it out, okay? So when Pharaoh comes along and says, hey, you're not doing what I told you, what do you think would normally have happened to these two, these two midwives here? This guy's quite happy uh, to slaughter babies. What's he going to do with the midwives that say I, they didn't do as, he, as they were told? Well, I'll leave it to your imagination. But I don't really think they would have said, oh, okay then, and walked off. Do you? I don't think he would have been very happy with them. So here is a point at which you see divine intervention. You see someone doing what their conscience or directly the Spirit of God tells them and then making a stand in front of the enemy and God delivering them. And what happens, it says in verse 20, this is after Pharaoh had met them. Let's go to 19. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're lively and give birth before the midwives get to them. Pharaoh's nonplussed, obviously. And he says, therefore God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. We can be assured out of this that if we make that stand and we respond to what God's given us to do in that sort of context, he will do good to us. Uh, now, we don't take the stand because we know he's going to do good to us. We take the stand because he told us to. Okay. But remember that God is no man's debtor and he will actually deliver us from this situation. So moving on, Pharaoh comes up with another grand plan now. This time he commands all his people saying every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. He's now turning on his own people. This is every son, not just the Israelite kids, and where his chosen means of genocide, if you like, is the river. What river is this? Geography question. Yeah? The River Nile. Okay. 
Uh, the River Nile, if you know anything about geography, or as much as me, about that much, um, is the source of life for the entire nation of Egypt. Egypt wouldn't have been there but for that river. Okay? And the reason it's the source of life and created a fertile land in the middle of a desert is that it flooded every year and brought down all the nutrients and, and good stuff uh, from somewhere else where the river started in Africa. So it gets all these minerals, all these nutrients for the plants and so on, and it flushes out over the entire land of Egypt every year. Okay? And so they actually deify it, the Egyptians. You know, the, it's the river God. Okay? But in this case, Pharaoh is using it as death to his kids. And I think there's something there for us in that... Um, we live in, a, you, you do now, I used to, <laughs> live in a capital city. This is a city which is throbbing with life, okay? Um, the, the whole world is here, isn't it? If you like, it's a microcosm of everything that there is here. Pharaoh chooses that. Pharaoh chooses the very flow of life in the community of Egypt to be destruction to the children. And that's a warning to us. The very flow of life in which we live can sow destruction to our kids. Okay? Because that's Pharaoh's ploy. Man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a healthy child, she hid in three months. You can probably hide a child for about three months, but after three months, um, they start to get a lot more noisy, don't they? Well, if you've got a child that's not three months yet, don't worry, it'll be all right. <laughs> this, uh, this lady knew, I'm not going to be able to do this for much longer. I don't know how she did hide him, but she knew that after a while, it's going to get a bit dicey whether this child is going to be discovered or not and dispatched like the rest of them. So what does she do? When she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, I've just said, this river is probably, if you've ever seen it, I've got to say I haven't, but I've seen it on videos and things, would probably be the biggest um, river you've ever seen sort of several miles across in places. And uh, it floods every year. Mighty flood that floods the nation. Would that be a safe place for you to park a baby? Any thoughts on anywhere better? <laughs> I mean, probably anything you mention might be a better place than that. Yeah? And what we got here is a, a little baby crib, yeah? Um, covered in pitch, you know. You, I wouldn't float that on the river roading with a baby in it. Would you? Actually, probably even less the river road. In, but yeah. <laughs> she goes and does this. And to me, you know, that, that speaks of anxiety, that speaks of pressure, speaks of tension, speaks of someone acting totally irrationally out of fear. Have you ever seen anyone do that? I'm seeing a nation doing it. Big scenes, little scenes. People doing utterly stupid things because they don't know what to do. They're beside themselves. Um, 
she sees a crib as something that the child can be cosy in, can be comforted in, but she doesn't see the big picture at all. Cosy little basket, go and put it down here in these reeds, you know, never mind the crocodiles, you know. <laughs> River Nile, famous for crocodiles, um, famous for flooding, and uh, also pretty busy place. Child is not going to be stay hidden there for very long, as is proven in a moment. But the next point is the most important. Just his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark, she sent her maid to get it. When she opened it, she saw a child, and the child was crying. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Who is this? Who's walking along the riverbank? See if you're still with me. Pharaoh's daughter. Remember who Pharaoh is? Yeah? What's his character generally? Yeah? What's his policy at the moment? Do you think his daughter's interested in that? So that she might be affected somehow by the fact that her dad has decreed that the entire nation of boys should be drowned and uh, she's living in his household, she's walking along the riverbank wearing all his wealth. I think she might have a different response but for something operating here that we can't see. What does she do? She has compassion on him. That compassion doesn't generate from Pharaoh's household, right? There's no such thing there. That compassion generates from the household of faith that we belong to, that is embodied in one person who is standing, it says, at a distance. We don't know what distance that is. This sister, Miriam, we don't know who told her to do it, we just know that she saw something dangerous that worried her going on and she decided that she was going to do something about it. She's a Hebrew slave girl. She is not going to be allowed anywhere near a pharaoh princess, okay? But she stands there at whatever risk it seems she wasn't bothered. And she wasn't bothered who this is that's fishing her little brother out of the river. She's going to go up and she's going to make a stand. How, where does that come from? All I can say is that we get a clue to that in a minute, okay, where it came from. Because um, she had compassion on him and his sister said, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you. Now, that's a brilliant scheme to come up with just like that, isn't it? Yeah? See, I think this young lady has had a flash of wisdom from God, which, again, we can be asking for in any situation that we face. You know, God, what do I do here? This is, this is crisis, okay? Um, my, my baby brother is likely to be thrown into... The river, or actually, she seems to be having compassion. So, what's the other thing that might happen? She's going to take him. She's going to take him. Going to take my brother. Let me find someone to nurse him, because she has been brought up within the household of faith, in the love and discipline of the Lord, like many of us. Okay, and that is something that counts. 
It counts for more than anything else in this situation. Miriam is seeing two risks. One, he might either drown or he might actually be taken off and raised where? In the headquarters of the enemy, in the very place uh, where all this wicked scheme of destruction of the children was hatched. My brother is going to go live there? No way. Let me find somebody. And so it unravels that Moses is released back from the hands of the enemy into the household of faith. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Let's just pause there. So the woman took Moses and he was nursed and brought up in his own family, in the family that we enjoy. Okay? But actually, his interest is a little aside here. Um, who paid? Yeah. The money, or whatever it was they needed to raise this child, all came straight out of the devil's pockets, you know. We can pickpocket the enemy, can't we, if we make a stand in the right place and suddenly find that the resources that we need are being uh, brought to us. Well, God can do that however he wishes, but it's really fun to see that uh, here it's Pharaoh himself that's paying for the upbringing of this child that he would have had drowned, okay. Uh, because of what happened, because that child, Miriam, um, took a risk, didn't she? She stepped out. She stepped out in front of the princess, in front of the princess's entourage, risked her life because she knew what she was doing was right. And I don't know if she knew what was going to happen next, but God gave her wisdom and then God followed through by changing the heart of that princess, somehow confusing her, rather like she had Pharaoh with the midwives, yeah? like he had Pharaoh with the midwives. Uh, Pharaoh got nonplussed, got confused. Oh, all right, yeah. So here's this princess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go and find someone to nurse him. That's it. God intervening. Powerful way. And what happens? The child grew and she brought him back. Pharaoh's daughter. I think, why would you do that? Why would you give him back to the person that you sort of risked your life to save him from in the first place? And he became her son. Why would you do that? And she called his name Moses, and so on. Well, it's not clear in the scripture, but again, if we think about what's been happening here, God has got a purpose for this young man's life. God has been following every step of the way. God has been bringing in key people at key moments to make key differences to what would happen with Moses. Okay, And when he was brought back to the household of Pharaoh, what did we get? We got the beginnings of the thing we started with, that Pharaoh would know Joseph. Pharaoh would know Moses. Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh, but he wasn't, he wasn't corrupted. He wasn't turned into an evil despot. He remained a child of God. That's another comfort for us, you know. We might f find it hard to see our youngsters uh, being challenged 
and needing to go and make stands in situations that we've probably never faced. But what we do need to know is that God can deliver them, even from the very headquarters of the devil himself. So don't be too shocked sometimes by where God sends you or takes you. Obviously, keep safe, be wise, ask God for his help in situations, but there isn't anywhere. There is not anywhere on earth where a child of God, someone who is endued with the Spirit, cannot go and make a difference and see something radically changed. Moses grew up, didn't he? And he became the person that brought Israel out of Egypt into the promise that God had given them. Okay? So children of promise can be placed anywhere and we can have an expectation that God will bring them up um, as his people in that context and see uh, all hell contained, changed, altered. Yeah? Where are the positions? Where are the Miriam positions now? Just think for a minute. Do you think that there are any that we could be occupying? Do you think personally there's any that you can be occupying? I think there are Miriam positions. Um, obviously it's to do with things that are going on that you become aware of that offend your spirit, the spirit directs your attention towards and you get a sense, wait a minute, I need to be keeping vigil, I need to be watching this, I need to be ready, I need to be in a position to move.